to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA on the Go. Welcome back, everyone. Um, we really hope that you're all hanging in there and staying well and keeping your spirits up as much as possible in these tough times. I know CASA volunteers are out there doing really important work right now, staying connected to the children and youth we work with and helping to ensure that those young people are staying connected to the important people in their lives during these isolated times which is why I'm incredibly happy to um, be hosting Candace Dosman, Director of Collaborative Family Engagement here at Texas CASA to talk with us about connection-informed care. So thank you so much, Candace, for joining us. Thank you, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and I've listened to all the podcasts so far, so I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So let's start off by just, if you could share a little bit about your background um, and uh, your role at Texas CASA. Absolutely. So as you said, I'm the Collaborative Family Engagement Director with Texas CASA, but I've only been here uh, about five years, coming up to five years now. Uh, my career has been in child welfare, the child welfare arena. Um, I was with CPS, the equivalent of CPS in Canada, for 15 years, where I held a variety of roles. I was an awake overnight staff in group home. I was a caseworker for eight years. And then in 2011, I became the first what we called family finder at our agency and was one of the few of a handful of family finders in the province. So that was a part of the connection or the kinship team and a new direction for the whole province. So that was work in family engagement and family finding, and that eventually led me here to Texas, where, as I mentioned, I'm coming up to five years, and I help oversee our collaborative family engagement initiative. Awesome. Well, we're so happy to have you with us. Um, I think that a lot of folks are familiar with um, the idea of trauma-informed care and what it means to use a trauma-informed advocacy lens. And I think that some advocates may be less familiar with the idea of connection-informed care, although... I believe these two, these two ideas are pretty deeply connected. So could you help us understand what we mean when we talk about connection-informed care in our work with children and families? Absolutely. Um, as you mentioned, we know about the impacts of trauma on the development of the child, and it's becoming more known about the impacts of loneliness and isolation and lack of positive relationships overall for kids, and their kids and all humans, really, on our overall physical and emotional health. Um, so if we approach our work and advocacy with the understanding that children and all people need and deserve to be in and surrounded by positive relationships with others, connected to them, um, and that connection really lends to that greater resiliency that we promote in our systems um, and promotes uh, positive outcomes, then we're really coming from a place of connection-informed care. I think that connection-informed care is about keeping relationships and engagement with the children and their families and others that they love and care about really at the forefront of our work and in our advocacy through all different angles. So I think by naming it clearly as connection-informed care, it helps lend credence to that and a focus behind that effort. Awesome. And how would you say that it benefits children and, and how it might benefit parents for us to use a connection-informed approach to our advocacy as CASA volunteers? How long do we have for this podcast today? <laughs> I could go on and on, but 
trying to keep it brief. Um, I think one of the unintended consequences of foster care is sometimes separating the child from their family and friends, schools, community, all of that in order to keep them safe, which is so important. But effectively, this might be experienced as a social quarantine, not that different than what we're experiencing globally right now together. Um, So maintaining a connection-informed approach to our advocacy, we have an opportunity to promote normalcy while the kids are in foster care. We're supporting existing relationships of importance for them or helping to establish new ones. Um, We know that it takes really only one positive relationship to make the needed difference in someone's life. And while that most definitely, definitely can be a CASA advocate while the child is in care, that's not the intended long-term role of a volunteer. So who will be, who will be there for the child when the CPS case closes? Um, we want to make sure um, that the volunteer really keeps the family and those need for connection at the forefront so that when the case closes, there are more people there than just the CASA volunteer. So this brings me how it benefits the parent. Um, and quite simply, it comes back to the proverb that it takes a village to raise a child. Parents and caregivers need a team around them. Every family needs a team. We all need a team. Um, So if we support parents or caregivers to be connected and supported, they'll have the help and there'll be more support around them, overall promoting the safety and well-being of everyone in that home. Awesome. Um, And it feels like over the last few years, the child welfare movement has been coming to a greater understanding about the importance of connectedness for the children and families that we work with. Would you say that this is an area where child welfare advocates and leaders have realized that maybe some of our older ways of approaching um, our intervention with families in crisis, like has there been kind of a rethinking about how to best serve the families that we work with? I think so. Um, But I have to say that when I came to Texas from Canada, I was really surprised and very impressed to see how family-centered and strength-based child protection work here already was. Um, It was really evident to me that family was valued and prioritized, and I think we've just continued to move in that direction and build upon that great work. I think that over the last decade especially, there's been uh, more widely known and accepted in the CASA network. Um, for that value of family and involving them in the process um, and the need for connection. And I think that a big part of that was starting with the diligent recruitment grant that had a focus on finding family for older youth exiting the system. And now I think it's become much more known that all kids, no matter if they've just been removed or if they're exiting the system, need and deserve to be connected. So Texas, we started collaborative family engagement in late 2015. And since then, the network's really been embracing, sorry, embracing their role um, and their ability to engage with families as early as possible and to ensure those connections. But of course, there's still a long way to go. There are still some barriers and misconceptions to the role of CASA in this work of family engagement. But I do see that the tides are shifting. 
That's really great to hear. Um, and using a connection-informed advocacy lens, it means that we're actively and meaningfully engaging with the child's family and community members, right? And we'll talk in just a minute about some of the important and creative ways that we can do that as CASA volunteers. Um, but first, I thought it would be interesting to just kind of look at some of the myths or, or misconceptions that might sometimes hold someone back from seeking out and engaging with family members. Could you speak to some of the misconceptions that child advocates might have about working with families? Sure. Um, some of the age-old misconceptions I think that are out there that I know I've heard and I've probably said when I was a caseworker myself are ones like the apple doesn't fall, fall far from the tree. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Questions about why the family didn't come forward at first. Um, belief that the family knew the young person was removed, but they didn't call. Those are all really common beliefs. And they're fair questions and they're fair thoughts if we're really open to looking and finding the answers to them and looking beyond that initial assumption. Um, often the answers we find are about misinformation or not knowing, families that have distanced themselves from one another for various reasons and often very good reasons. I, I once gave a talk where I asked the audience if they were to close their eyes and think about who in their family they would not trust their goldfish with. Almost everybody raised a hand. We all tend to have someone we know or care about that we don't necessarily want to trust our children or our pets with. And so that point that this happens to all of us, families are complicated, um, but that people can change and people can grow and we can learn from past mistakes. We recently had a situation um, here in Texas of a youth that had been in care for many years. And through some of our collaborative family engagement tools, an aunt was located and contacted. She thought that the child had been adopted a long time ago. Can you guess who she works for? It's CPS. So she is currently caring for the youth. And as much as these stories are hard to hear, they're not uncommon. Unfortunately, they happen all the time. Um, and sometimes we do ask about family or other important people and another kind of misconception, because this is what they're telling us, is that there's no one. So we will ask and we'll check the box and say we asked, but we really need to work hard to unpack that answer of there's no one. Um, the trouble with that answer is that um, we accept it as truth without further exploring it or revisiting it at a different time or better yet, asking some different questions to unpack it a little bit more. If I may offer a few, a few more thoughts on this question is that there's a lot of reasons that people will say there's nobody. And so I encourage volunteers, if you hear that there is no one, um, to know that there's feelings of fear and anger, shame and embarrassment behind that answer and that it will take time and some different engagement techniques to discover and get to the real answer. One last thing I'd like to encourage um, is when we're working with families to really be mindful of the language that we're using, even with one another. And I think this lends to the thoughts around misconceptions. So I remember when I was a worker, often with attorneys, I would hear that a relative had come out of the woodwork at the 11th hour what kind of can of worms would we be opening while suddenly engaging with this person? 
And while that might be good intentioned, there's a lot of negative connotations behind all of those sayings. Relatives are not pests, and it should never be too late to engage with them. Great. That's a wonderful point, Candice. We have the privilege to get to work with these people as CASA advocates, and so it's always so important that we are being careful that our language is very human-centered. And um, so I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, and now that we understand why connection-informed care is so critical to empowering families to heal and succeed, um, let's talk about how we can actually practice it. So what are some ways that we can apply this lens and advocate for greater connectedness in our casework? Sure. And so if programs are already um, working with Texas CASA on collaborative family engagement, they should be able to answer this question very easily. Um, and for those uh, programs or volunteers that are not yet practicing CFE, we do plan to be um, statewide with this initiative over the next few years. But in the meantime, there's lots of things that we can be doing um, to really practice in this way with families. So one of the things that we encourage is just to spend your time when you're um, meeting with the child or parents. Um, I'll focus on the child first. If you're talking with the child, you can be asking them questions about who's important to them, who are they connected to, who would they like to spend time with while they're in care. Um, just really those basic questions can get a lot of information. And we have some different tools available that can help bring that information out as well. Versus a direct interview, we use some different drawing techniques. But I would encourage that advocates are also open to talking to parents and caregivers and other relatives about who else is in theirs or their child's life that they may be able to keep in touch with and who's a support to them. Another point about this is that connection does not necessarily mean a placement. And of course, that's the golden thing we all want. We want to get kids safely in a permanent forever home. Um, but sometimes our systems are too focused on permanency and rule people out for being a connection if they can't open up their homes. So friends and neighbors and coaches and community members and others can really play important and supportive roles in a child or parent's life without offering up their home. So I would approach our CASA advocacy with that in mind, which really will promote normalcy that we're really um, strong with and support in the network. So by talking to them about this, it gives voice to the parents and the young people about their lives and relationships and really helps empower them. And then it also benefits CASA because we're building those stronger relationships um, for those that we're advocating on behalf of, and it helps us do the great work that we're trying to do. Great. Um, and one of the core values in connection-informed care is that we really need to see the families that we're working with as the experts of their own lives. Um, and I think in my experience in the child welfare, working in the child welfare system, I think that seems on one hand really clear why that's true and is so important. And then on the other hand, I don't think that's always the approach that our system has taken. So what are some ways that CASA volunteers can embody this really important value? I think by asking some of the questions I mentioned earlier about who is, you know, who is important to them, who do they want to be spending time with, um, who do they want to bring to their meetings are a big one. Also asking about 
what they want. What what is it that you think your family needs in ter- to get your child back? Um, what does the young person need to succeed? Really just asking them and hearing them out and acknowledging and honoring all of those good things, I think are crucial. We have a wide range of resources and tools available for advocates to use in their work to help ensure that the family really is at the center of our work and is seen as the expert in their lives. Um, one, one quick example of that is we have a genogram software that everyone is able to have a license to. It's available for the network. This is a great tool for us to build family trees but also can be shared and built upon with the young person and their families so that we can ensure it's correct or we're putting on there who the family or young person wants. Another example is if CASA volunteers are uh, invited to attend a family meeting, I would one, highly recommend that you go and participate, and two, use this as a great opportunity to meet and connect with the family and involve them in the planning and decision-making process. And then if if volunteers or program staff are aware of other people that should be invited to the family meeting, please let CPS know. Sometimes we just go to a meeting and it's mom and maybe just mom or mom and grandma. But if we have that information, let's share it with our uh, CPS partners and make sure we can get some more voices around that table. Awesome. Candice, thank you so, so much for um, joining us today. One last thing that I wanted to throw out there, just when we're talking about this really important work of engaging with families, you know, we know it's always just so important to keep in mind that we're often working with families who may have different cultural backgrounds than our own, um, and that the ability to communicate and work effectively across cultural lines um, and to build trust um, is so important um, as far as engaging with family, addressing best interest, and and working towards safety and permanency. So just um, adding that on there. Um, is there anything else you'd like to throw out there to our listeners before we close for today? I just want to agree with you on your point with um, with that, because really to do our work of advocacy, we need to advocate for the best interest of the whole child, not just the child in their foster home or in their placement, but their, their whole being, which is their culture and community and identity and family. Um, the list goes on. None of us are what we are in just this one context. We have the whole thing around us. And so I think that's a a really important point that you brought up. Awesome. Candice, thanks again for joining us and and sharing your expertise with us. And thanks to all of our listeners. Um, Stay well out there and we hope you join us next time. Thanks for listening to Casa on the Go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas Casa. 